the Aztec people of Central America, Chihuacoatl, or Snake Woman, was a goddess of fertility and motherhood, usually depicted as an elderly woman with a skull for a face, festooned with spears and shields. Under her watch, women who died in childbirth were honoured as fallen warriors. Their spirits were known to haunt crossroads and waterways, wailing for their lost children. The Spanish conquerors who invaded Central America tried to stamp out indigenous beliefs, replacing them with Christianity. But they were not totally successful. Nowadays, Mexican children are still sometimes warned to watch out for La Llorona, the ghost of a weeping woman. In life, La Llorona was an indigenous woman, abandoned by her upper-class husband. Driven mad with grief and rage, she drowned her two children in a lake. And now, shut out of a Christian heaven, she haunts crossroads and waterways, searching for their spirits, snatching away children she mistakes for her own. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask poets to rewrite the myths and legends and fairy stories that they want to pass down the generations. Stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. Just like to warn you that this episode may contain adult themes and strong language, so listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. Joining me are Olga Dermott-Bond, Natalie Limbolderston, and over in Brooklyn, New York, Malika Booker. So all of your stories deal with female characters, and often in the fairy tales we encounter through the Brothers Grimm, through Hans Christian Andersen, all of that stuff, there isn't really an embarrassment of riches when it comes to engaging female characters. So what did you guys have on offer when you were growing up? Olga? When I was young, not a great deal, to be honest. I didn't know what a feminist was, but even as a five or six year old, I obviously, there was a feminist inside waiting to get out because I was always hugely disappointed by the female characters that I came across. You know, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So someone who tries to escape and ends up keeping house for seven men. I always felt at a distance from these female characters because again, they seemed marginalised, but yet I was intrigued by them. I wanted to find out more about them, but they were always just fulfilling a function in a story, normally one of convenience and domesticity. But certainly there wasn't a female character I really connected to as a young reader. It wasn't until much later on, I think, when there was a more proliferation of, of strong female writers writing strong female characters that I could identify with them. How about you, Natalie? For me, I got most of my female characters as a young girl from Disney films and I think it wasn't until I saw Mulan that for the first time there was this historical Asian woman that I could look up to and I just loved the fact that she had so much agency um, the fact that she had so much to overcome and did it and she wasn't just a kind of physical physically strong woman she was also like tactician, a friend, a daughter, as well as being this amazing warrior. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I still feel almost haunted by that kind of cultural baggage, despite growing up in a house of women, despite my mum doing her absolute best to dissuade me 
from usual stories of princesses in high towers getting saved because they have nice hair. And I like to think that I am totally purified and cleansed of these stories, that there is nothing about a princess getting saved that still appeals to me in terms of narrative, in terms of emotional drama. But I would be lying to you if I were to say that there wasn't some kind of kernel of myself deeply programmed to be drawn to these kinds of stories. And that seems to be what all of your stories are writing against in defiance of that daily practice of sloughing off these kinds of stories that we're that we're trained with from the cradle. Absolutely. I think there's such a rich history of male narratives um, where the woman comes second or is conveniently part of the story. And I think you're right. I think writing against that is still a relatively recent phenomenon but something that definitely interests me uh, and all of us here. So let's hear the first of our stories today, which comes from Malika Booker in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, I'm Malika Booker. And the folklore character that I decided to work with and to rewrite is called Lager Bless. I decided to work on Lager Bless because she's like one of my favorite folklore heroines, actually. She lures men. <laughs> Um, who've been badly behaved, um, she lures them away and they end up dead or crazy. I grew up all my life hearing stories about Lajabless and I really enjoyed this folklore because unlike Greek mythology, this Caribbean um, character, folklore character Lajabless is a woman who I think um, is invented by matriarchs, is invented by women. She doesn't do anything to women. And she really is dangerous for men, particularly men who have exhibited bad behavior in some way. But it's usually said that Lajabless come from uh, the times of slavery when you wore the long dresses. And, and it said if you see a woman, a beautiful woman, under the moonlight, combing her hair, singing, and you're a man, run before she sees you. And um, especially if you ha are, you know, if you've beaten your wife or you've drunk all the money that you're meant to give your, your children or to provide for home. Once the Lager Bless has lured these men away, you never see them again. In Trinidad, it's said that she takes them into a forest and, um, and she walks them all night and they're found off a precipice or off a, fallen off a, a, a cliff or a steep hill um, with a broken neck. Or if they do escape her, they're, they're mad, they're insane, and they're, they've, they've lost some kind of sanity. Um, and in Grenada, you find the man wandering, and he has no sense of himself, and he's become insane in some way, or he's fallen off a cliff. Um, and I wondered what would happen if Lajabres traveled from the Caribbean to Brixton, to, to Britain, to the inner city London, what would life be like if she traveled there? And also I thought about the idea of putting on, because I'm into carnival and masquerade, and the idea that a masquerader puts on um, the costume, and I wondered if, if Lajabless is hair and combing her hair and her, um, she's usually said to have one cow foot and one normal foot, and she's said to be the mistress of the devil. So she's made a deal with the devil, and that's why the crossroads and stuff. And I wondered what, what, would, what kind of victims would she have in, in England? And I was thinking about all the Me Too movement and all the Catholic priests and all the entertainers who were, who 
who you know have been tried or been accused of various acts against women and also I was thinking if she's on the street I was thinking of pimps and people who ill-treat women in a way and how would Lager Bless deal with that and how would she deal with the weather and what would she find to to, to, to kill her victims if there is no cliff and there is no greenery, no woods to lure them to. So that's what I've done with Lager Bless and the poem's called Lager Bless's Masquerade. One. Outside her window, commuters bust a city hustle. She's a pot of water, ordinary, tasteless, until inside something begins to bubble as her TV repeats a litany of dragged up archives, chapters ransacked from cage kids now grown, birds broken, singing hoarse sounds through beaks rusted on silence, causing black-robed priests and wrinkled rock stars to be hustled into police fans, hooded heads bowed, causing her bubbling pot to pitch until she's a pressure cooker, steam rising to a guttural hum. Her fingers strum the thick fine of waist beads around her middle, like a guitar. Each bead a trophy in this place where fruit rots and shrivels on branches with no splatter. Two. That night she anointed herself whore, Jezebel, crow, venom, became masquerader and reveled, raised conch shell to each ear to catch home rhythms till waist start pepper air, feet dancing goat, nimble and beast, wide rim broad hat slanted to one side, long skirt rippling, heels clicking, a woman walking to her own beat, ripe goal, stalking the road like she own it, cars slowing, men wanting to pelt that waistline, slip fingers up she slit, to knead the leg like raw meat. And aside, rumours followed her, was she not born with a cold sheet covering her face? She's not here to make friends Susu or Mako or skin teeth. They say she shined that steel heels sharp point like farmers oiling the cutlass. Death is the infant she suckles at her breast. Three. She sits under this placid sun, air thick with vehicle fumes. Her only pleasure the sound of foxes mating savage and how disappointing the foxes timidity the way they slink she a brown nutmeg is disappearing into this dank place too how this place has sharp teeth and frigid breeze gnaws her skin as she tries to walk its steady rhythm but london is too stagnant no stars in the night sky no monkey hair breaky back no crick just crack she's learning how brown women lose value here become more worthless than sand invisible but she will not be pummeled like dough under a baker's muscles not with scent of home-blazing cocoa on her skin. Fresh scenes of sandflies owning the dark, peeny wallies flickering like floating fairy lights after dusk flounces her red, orange and pink silk petticoat eclipsing clouds. 
remembers all the high places a man could fall and break their damn necks, like Mount St. Catherine. Precipices, ravines and cliffs with the sea as background orchestra kissing and slapping rocks, moody as a menopausal woman. How fishermen's boats bubble on the tide, men bulging arms, hauling nets pregnant with wriggling fish. It's all in the skill of the catch and where you cast your net, they say, heaving, then bending over and over in rhythm to reel in and come again. She remembers the sound of ripe fruit too heavy for its branch, splattering on hard ground. And on bright full moon nights sitting in shadows on unlit crossroads, deserted after midnight, save for lone drunks, fueled on Clark's Court rum and beaty wife before he fuck her. Four. Deserted junction. Lone masquerader. Cars slow. Men lonely. No. She shakes head, sways, hums. Then him. Behind his eyes, bloody knives in clenched fisk. Young women cover. She smiles. Yes. Muscles. Fishermen hauling nets. Wears danger like skin, tough thug. She leans forward, voice gurgling river. His ears move closer, vessel for rage. Worthless woman seeks to hold down, spoil beauty, break jaw, blacken eyes, yank hair. She walks, fingers way speeds. He follows, strong back, hard back man. Block of flats, piss stench, use needles. Use condoms. She leans, peels back hat, hums, take warning, you better take warning. On loop, on ease, he's hard man, bad man in the ends, can't move to shove her against steel wall, fists coiling throat, snails crawling on her tongue, he shakes his head, his weed, too strong, nah, shakes his head, weed, strong, humming, humming, he want to slap her bloody mouth shut, boarded up flat, she stalks, he steps back, balcony raining, she leans in, mouth rancid, graveyard, rears back, fright, paws raise, palms on chest singing, evil that men do glides like athlete over high jump pole high heel kicks like football hurtling from 16th floor balcony air sailing splatter on hard floor she a branch shaking rotten fruit laughing kia 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 watching the shard full moon tonight splatter Malika Booker in Brooklyn, New York. So Natalie, what do you make of La Diablesse? I really like how in both the original myth and in Malika's retelling of La Diablesse, um, she transforms and reclaims this space that would usually be dangerous for her as a woman you know, alone at night. Um, and the fact that she carnivalizes that power dynamic um, to make it so that it's actually dangerous for the man. 
Mm. There's always something incredibly appealing about the idea of being monstrous, of being threatening. If you're used to being the object of violence or if you're used to people warning you, don't go out at night, make sure you've got your keys through your fists like Wolverine or whatever. And that's something that's very troubling and also very attractive about Ladia Bless. There's the thing that makes her horrifying and monstrous and something that should be feared and cast out is also the thing that, I don't know, makes me very reassured that, you know, there might be a Ladia Bless around London just kind of turfing out the terrible men. Thing. Olga? I think what really struck me listening to Malaika's work was how La Diablesse comes alive in adversity. Uh, she transforms in the course of the poetry sequence, in the course of the story, from someone who is um, not distinguished or is not distinct, but then through this idea of carnival and transformation becomes, as you say, a kind of monstrous character but a captivating character who towards the climax of the poem really takes control because normally in a lot of myths in a lot of folklore it's women who are punished and in this case it's the man who's being punished and the way that Malaika writes it to that really exciting and horrific crescendo that climax that gruesome climax um, of pushing him off the block of flats. To me, there is something that is troubling about it, but also a very empowering moment for that character. It seems like very much a kind of avenging angel action. So there's this kind of um, retribution that she's enacting and reclaiming that violence as something that could potentially protect women in the future as well as herself. Now, talking of avenging angels and protective women, I would love to hear what myth you have chosen. So I have chosen to retell the legend of Truti Trin. Um, Truti Trin was a third century Vietnamese warrior woman who led a resistance against the occupying Chinese army. And she's also known as Ba Tru and Lady Tru. So Truti Trin is actually more of a speculative name but I've decided to use it as this gesture towards how I'm trying to flesh her out as a complete person. The poem is called Truti Trin, or The Lady General Clad in Golden Robe. 1. Blessed. Truti Trin recalls childhood. When I picture my mother, I press her wooden beads to my lips. I have spent my life trying to remember her, and maybe I do. I imagine that she told me my name is white flower, is virgin, is untouchable, that my body could be more than hungry and kneeling. I see the blue birthmarks we share, drops of ocean pinned to our shoulders. I see her pointing at clouds the shade of her ache, as she prophesied that one day I would pearl at the centre of a storm, swallow an entire monsoon. I believe that I lived on the mankuk she fed me from a sharpened bone, that I slept in the shelter of her shadow. How else to bless a girl with no place in her nation? Did she know how few breaths we were from separation, that there would be no one left to call me Kung? On her last night, I like to think that she wrapped us both in yellow, 
that I kept my head on her breast as it grew still. 2. Burning. Truti Trin goes to war. And then the whole city is alight. And though the smoke from temple worship is not the same smoke that blinds the stars, I cannot help exhaling a prayer. I see it settle on the shoulders of children who hide beneath their mother's dresses. I see it slide between the fingers of a widow stitching up her daughter's thigh. I see it glance off my spear as I aim at a man's ribs. I see it coil around his arrows, two between his teeth, a third pointed at a girl's back as she bends to collect water. Days ago, the first tree caught fire and an ox threw a pregnant woman from its back. In the screaming light, I could barely see her tears. The forest has still not burned itself out. The elephant's ears are singed like orchid petals in drought. Women have begun to ask me how to love a land that is already half gone, where our sisters' bones feed the soil and every day we gather our own bodies like kindling. I tell them, love with one hand in the river, your palm against the belly of a fish. Love with your head tilted, an ear to the sky, as if listening for the heartbeats of the gods. Love with the pain in your stomach when you breathe in the smell of a pig with just enough flesh left to roast. 3. Birth Truti Trin delivers a baby on the battlefield. Without a word, I carry her from the battle, a woman who is strongest with another life in her flesh. I give her plum tree bark to chew for the pain, knowing it does nothing, but I cannot deny her. I lay her down and part her thighs. When she kicks me, I sing an old song about two sisters who declared themselves queens beside the Red River, killed a tiger to prove their strength. The baby writhes at the first breath of our country on her face. I cut the cord with a bamboo knife. Her mother names her Ang to protect her blood holds a rain-wet lotus above her mouth so she will always find her voice. As she grows, she will replace the story of how she was fathered with how she was birthed, from a body shining with burns in the shadow of a war elephant. She will learn that in a land where there is never enough to eat but always so much to grieve, all you need to exist are the shaking hands of two women. 4. Belief. Truti Trin pays tribute to the dead. I build shrines in every village, kneel to so many girls destined for graceless deaths. A man once said, the grave will spit back women like you, and sometimes I feel them, balancing on my eyelashes. How long does it take to forget the refuge of skin? Oh, my sisters of smoke, forgive me. I wanted something better than what we were born into. I wanted to see you rise from hiding, voices echoing in every direction like the bell in the holy city. Would you have followed me if you knew how easily the soul spills over? I taught you that the body survives beyond what it can endure, but there are some things your prayers cannot make whole.
some battles you cannot outcurse. I save my mother's shrine for last. There is no fruit left, so I draw my knife, and with one cut I offer my braid. I ask her to find her way back to flesh, to tell me what it means when I dream of snake heads, blue floods, a mankuk with teeth at the core. I want to know what she saw the moment before she died. I want her to tell me it was a hand with a white flower opening at the centre. Five, Beetle. Truti Trin dies. The river holds on like a past life, finds its origins beneath my tongue. Let me work backwards. One hundred men chew beetle nuts until shadows crawl from their mouths. Men who will say, she was quite beautiful once, who will tell you they cornered me with their nakedness, that I cowered at the sight of bare flesh as if I had never ripped shirts from the backs of dead men, to swaddle the babies they fathered, then left, or to press to the wounds of their mothers. Even now, forced back against the palms, on a cliff strewn with nutshells and red spit, I take aim with my last arrows before I fall. While I am still mid-air, I swear I hear one hit. I feel the hands of every soul I have ever put my ear to, I know I am safe because the river only drowns what it can touch. As my body sinks, the core of me will surface, studded with salt. The theme of motherhood and the importance of mothers as an axis of, of survival and resistance so important. Did you learn about this from your mum? Yes, I, th I think I did. My mum is naturally very protective. Um, she's the second oldest daughter of 12 siblings. Wow. Um, <laughs> so she grew up kind of taking care of people. And I really feel that extended into my life and kind of really informed the voice that I used in this poem. Because storytelling is often a kind of very intimate maternal act. And mm. in your poem, there is this idea that stories themselves not just spears and weapons are mm. axes of protection and survival mm. um tutti trin is there with the mother mm. on the battlefield giving her something she knows is a placebo and knows won't work but the story itself is enough of uh, medicine to get her through is that something that resonates with you um Yes. So when I was writing that bit, I was thinking that this woman who was giving birth on the battlefield, what she really needed was strength. Um, she needed that kind of sisterly support. And I think that by telling her this story of these past warrior women, um, Truti Trin was trying to show her that there are a lineage of women who survived adversity, who survived pain, um, who survived another war long ago um, to kind of guide her through this very painful, like perilous process. And what do you take from those kinds of stories? So I think that when I'm reading these stories, what I'm looking for is um, trying to build this personal lineage of women who I can look up to and honour. 
Um, Because when I was growing up, I didn't really have that much creative media around me about specifically Asian heroines. So by reading and um, resurrecting and retelling these stories, I think I'm trying to rectify that. How much does your retelling deviate from, I guess, what you could call a normal (laughs) way of encountering this myth? Well, the thing was that there's the archives about Truti Trin are very incomplete. So actually, there was a lot of space for me to speculate about her life. Mm. Um, one thing was that she was orphaned at a very early age and was raised by her brother and his sister. So that's why I kind of went into her trying to remember her mother rather than an actual kind of mother-daughter scene um, later on in her life because she just wouldn't have had one. I think kind of reconstruction is a way to draw strength, owning your own version of what happened. Um, Yeah, is this a way to survive and work your way through it? And I love the transcendental quality at the end. So her death, in your version of it, is not this defeat at the hands of men, but really this very beautiful moment um, within water. And I loved that, that she is victorious right to the end. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, that refusal to be vanquished, that refusal of death is is an incredibly powerful moment. And it recalls the idea of trickster, which is really powerful in a lot of different myths from wildly different places in the world. The idea that by sheer force of will, by sheer force of personality, you can move mountains, you can cheat death, you can make fire spring from the ground, all that kind of thing. And that sort of reminds me of your work, Olga. Could you um, could you tell us what myth you've chosen? I chose the Irish myth of Finn McCool. And I chose this myth because it's one that I've known for a very long time. I heard it first when I was a young child at primary school and I probably heard it about the same time I was learning to read and write and it's always been a myth that's really resonated with me. Traditionally the tale is told almost like a creation myth so it explains the existence and the formation of the Giant's Causeway on the Antrim coast in Northern Ireland which is amazing it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and The basic narrative arc of the story is that there is Finn McCall, who's the Irish giant, and he is battling with a Scottish giant who is his superior in every single way. And at the start of the story in the myth, and there are different versions of it, Finn McCall has picked a fight with the Scottish giant. But he quickly realises, of course, that he is punching above his wit that there's no way he can vanquish this Scottish giant who is his superior. At this point cue Mrs McCall and it was interesting that as a child I only ever knew her as Mrs McCall. I didn't even know her first name which is Una and he goes to Una and says please help me I don't know what to do and at that point Mrs McCall steps in and saves the day and she by her cleverness and by her intelligence she tricks the Scottish giant Uh, she dresses her husband up as a baby and puts him in a cot she goes out to the garden and creates rocks and puts them into bread so when the Scottish giant arrives ready for a fight she says oh he's not here um 
but would you like to have a look at my baby? And then the Scottish giant, Ben and Donner, when he sees the size of the supposed baby, flees in sheer terror. And so she outwits the giant. Um, and as a character, she just always really intrigued me because the myth was always very much, much focused on the action and the fact that Finn McCool, at the end of the story, is the hero. He wins the day. Scottish giant flees and he rips up the causeway between Scotland and Ireland and that's the creation of the giant's causeway. But right from an early age, I was just so fascinated by this character of Una. What makes her do that? Uh, a very intelligent character, much cleverer than her husband. And I just was intrigued to explore her story more. Finn courts Una. Harebell. The first time he came to see her after work, it had rained a misery of tales all day. Her mother's kitchen shrunk, shriveled at the thought of a visitor. His shoulders, sleeping boats anchored deep beneath an old raincoat, scarcely covering shyness that she wanted to undress, mind skittering like a leveret. Her book learning left far from this equation. Cleverness, something she was used to hiding, conjugating verbs a witch's trick she could perform in her sleep. Daylight, chased far from the buckling doorway, she stood as sudden moonlight, wondering if he would sweep all the plates off the table, lift it with one vast hand. Instead, he took harebells from his pocket, purple slight flowers, brimming with wet hedge smell, held them outstretched, their modest heads trembling wild. A beautiful storm. Two. Una remembers her wedding day. White Sea Campion. She had to be sewn into her wedding dress. The worry. The wit. A little too thin to be pretty. She didn't think of it at the time, had laughed when Finn hadn't been able to find a knife to loosen her mother's work, and had gnawed at the thread with his teeth, then ripped hungry cloth with his impatient hands. Now mornings won't unloosen the pucker in her forehead that is stitched up too tight. At school she had hated cross-stitch, while the boys built planes. Two straight lines make a tight-lipped kiss. The mirror blooms with bruises. Her eyes are lakes that need to be dredged for her own body. When he touches her, she can think only of Newton's theories of simultaneity. But equations turn into fish, silver bodies tarnished behind her eyelids, under the sheets, between her legs. 3. Una tricks her husband's rival by gathering rocks. Nettle. The morning is ruined and she is writing an essay of her anger into the dust. He had promised her the time before this that it would never happen again. She searches along the dirt for a stone sharp enough, feels the pressure gathering under her nails, picked a fight he couldn't win and then came weeping, suddenly sober, the door lintel swaying behind him like a great bird. Clouds rise like nettle rash, and she realises she needs to get home, set her trap of ferocious kindness. His words turn into ugly welts every time. 
She stumbles back, awkward with rocks, arms wincing with their weight. Una, help me, he had pleaded. Make this go away. She is going to make her husband disappear. Have afternoon tea with the man who comes to kill him. He had promised her the time before this. She practices a smile innocent as a docken leaf. Here's the crunch of Ben and Donner's breaking teeth, the certainty of pain. He had promised. Why are all the things she has to love so difficult to carry? Four. Una dresses her husband up as a baby to fool the Scottish giant. Gorse. Just like she told him, he has crawled into the cot, muscles and arms bulging between wooden slats, now straining, bent to a boat, the whole room swimming with dust motes. She doesn't look at Finn's face, stubble like gorse, tearing against the sheets pulled tight, seams like crooked teeth. The first time she has been in the nursery since. She pushes away the picture of the fledgling she found the day before, face down, outside the kitchen door. A damp curve, feathers folded fast, no bigger than a leaf, beak bright yellow at the end of its matted body. It didn't look like itself. She shudders at the memory of its cold wetness, its lightness in the palm of her hand. Five. Una watches Ben and Donner flee, destroying the causeway in his wake. Grass of Parnassus. Any marriage is an island. This one is surrounded by more ocean than before. As Ben and Donner left, he pulled up the causeway, crumpling land like paper. Spendthrift kittiwakes have saved their songs for her, cries like ink spill as she counts the stones, naked as chill wind, granite bodies perfect as honeycomb. She steps down to her slivered edge, thinks of these men who change the shape of the world, pull up the past, seize mountains, hurl rooted earth far out to sea. It is the rest who live in the hollowed out spaces of their footfall. So vibrations of far-off earthquakes make teacups clatter on the sideboard, wake babies, make cracks appear across bedroom ceilings. She spies some grass of Parnassus. Pick it at your peril. A wail of water moans below, ready to swallow her whole. Una steps out into nothing. Her body flown, rewritten. So this story has been with you since before you could read and write almost. So how has it changed for you as you move through life? I think Una's character really has intrigued me for a long time. There are so many parts of her story that, like Natalie's, are not included in the original story. And I think when I was writing my poems, I became really intrigued and fascinated by all the things we aren't told about Una. So as a mother, I was really intrigued by this image of the empty cot. And again, thinking about what motivates a character 
to do what she does? Is is it from a place of loss or, or vengeance? And w- I was really struck, whereas Natalie's story, you know, there's so much imagery of, you know, birth and, and babies coming into the story. In Una's story, there seems to be an absence of that and surrounding that, uh, a sadness, really, to me. And again, that's just something I brought to the story as well. I also think... I mean, my poem's still definitely set in Ireland. And, you know, coming from a line of very strong women, and my mother certainly prized education very, very highly. But, you know, feminism didn't make it to Ireland in the same way that it did in England. And I think growing up, there were still very strict expectations about what a woman could or couldn't do. And I think that has really stayed with me as well. So I made Una a character who is highly educated, but hasn't really found an outlet for that. And her realm is definitely this domestic sphere that, you know, that she she owns, really. And I really love the fact in the story that it's, I think I've described it as domesticity at its most ferocious, that it's, she turns what should be, a nurturing place of home into the place where she outtricks the Scottish giant. So I love that inversion of what should be a, a, a nurturing image, a homely image, and turns it into a weapon, really, I suppose. Natalie, what do you make of the parallels between your two characters, that both ending up on a cliff edge in a kind of climactic scenario? Is there, are there parallels between Una and Tucci Trin at all? Yeah, I think that there are women who have been cornered. So um, Una, I feel like, has been cornered having performed this massive intellectual and tactical feat. And obviously, like you said, she doesn't want to go back. And Tucci Trin, she's literally cornered by and outnumbered by this army. And rather than be captured she has a choice um, to obviously jump into this river um, and obviously both endings are troubling but I think that for in both endings the water is a space of freedom um, it's this kind of expansive place where they don't need to be cornered. There is something defiant about both of these characters in their embrace of death and the way in which they throughout their stories there seems to be the kind of capitulation and the crescendo of all the different ways that they've defied expectations and one of those in your story Olga was how you you lent into the romance and the love and the eroticism at the beginning which drew these you know drew Finn McCool and Una together. Why did you go with that? I think you're absolutely right. I think there is this sense that Una as a character, before she meets Finn, is very much governed by her intellect and her book learning, as I put it, quite an old-fashioned phrase, an archaic phrase. But I think desire initially is something that unsettles her and throws her off balance but it's something that she can't really control I think that first meeting of Finn and Una in my first poem because I actually wrote the wedding poem first but then I thought I need to go back and 
talk about that first meeting. And again, a character who is, you know, she's in her mother's kitchen. There's a sense of hierarchy and order and the sense that Finn comes in and disrupts that order. I thought that was quite an exciting thing to work with. Um, and something that is not romantic at all in in the traditional sense, but um, the idea of attraction and sex as something that could be quite destructive. That definitely came into the poem right early on. Something that all of your stories touch on is, I guess, the price of, of love and intimacy whether that's the price of following a seductive woman into the woods at the edge of a cliff or the price of sacrifice and motherhood and domesticity. So what are we supposed to make of the fact that nonetheless these stories of love keep drawing us back in despite what we may know or suspect about their realities? Well, they're all tales of loss, aren't they? And in all of these works, the women have all lost something and whether it's in my tale that there is very much a portrait of of a relationship that has gone wrong or in Malika's work where there is a distinct lack of intimacy I think that thread of loss and yet the sacrifices that you make are very clear. I also think that all three stories really transcend their temporal boundaries because all three um, refer to grief and um, anger and pride in some kind of way. And also, not only do they explore the price of loss, or the, the price of love and the price of intimacy, but the price of transgression. So there's the fact that all these women occupy spaces that they might not normally be in. And they, their identities are explored in a way that they're not normally explored. So obviously Una is as well as being a wife, she's a scholar, she's a tactician, um, and La Jablesse isn't just a demon, she's, um, she's a masquerader, she's someone who finds joy in dancing and humming. And in the end, I think Una and Truti Trin both pay the price of being occupying these spaces where they're normally barred from, but wouldn't necessarily renege on that. And the difference with Ledger Bless, I think, is that someone else pays that price, which is an empowering ending. Given that Truti, Trin and Una are both asked to pay such a high price for their freedom and nonetheless are willing to pay it, it's kind of a tonic almost in Malika's story to see the price of that freewheeling monstrous ambiguous feminine freedom visited on someone else for once <laughs> that about wraps it up for us at bedtime stories for the end of the world we've had women on cliff edges women with cloven feet and women filling empty prams with their tempestuous husbands this project is supported by arts council england and the good folks at spread the word our project producer is tom mcandrew our podcast producer is maya bosworth you can check out all of the episodes from our past two series and find out more about our writers and their stories on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram. See you there. Sweet dreams. And thanks for listening. <laughs>